0: good afternoon, or good evening to everyone listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of the Well-Read Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bierke, aka The Real Bookish Writer. I am a reader, writer, bookseller, book festival goer, and I am and always have been obsessed with genre fiction. While you're here, there will be two segments, a short one where I review the books I've read for the past week, and then a longer one which will consist of a one-on-one author interview. So let's jump right in. Unfortunately, due to some personal issues and some health issues, I was unable to finish any books this week. However, I did start several, so tune in next week to hear the reviews on those. So let's jump into the interview portion of this episode. I am honored to introduce my guest today, who is a romance author extraordinaire and a plus size rep advocate. She first started scribbling stories into black and white composition notebooks with neon pink pens when she was in junior high and never really stopped. In college, she decided to turn her love of books into a career by pursuing a Ph.D. in literature, where she spent the next few years studying bizarre and entertaining medieval romances. Now, as a professor, she teaches courses in college writing, literature, and children's media. Her adult romance debut, The Makeup Test, released last year, while her second, On the Plus Side, comes out December 26th. Please welcome the incredible Jenny Howe. Well, welcome, 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 Jenny. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you here. How are you doing? I'm okay, and thank you for having
1: me. I'm so excited to be here. I don't know if it's December next month. I don't either. (laughs) I know this isn't going to air till December, but I don't know how it's December next month.
0: (laughs) I... I don't either. Honestly, like this year has gone by so fast, but good things happen in December because your second book is being released. Especially the day after Christmas. I'm so excited for you though. Congratulations on your second book coming out.
1: How's the uh, how's the process been? You know, it's so funny because I'm so deep into the third book now. <laughs> like, I mean, I have, so on the plus side tried to kill me when I was writing it. it was like, so I have- deep memories of that book in a way that i think by the time the makeup test came out i was like oh wait what's even in that book anymore because i was so deeply in on the plus side but i so when i wrote that book on the plus side it was first person present and my editor and i ended up deciding that that wasn't hitting the way we wanted it to and so i had to go back and change the tense and point of view of a 97 word manuscript and it was awful (laughs) And so um the I am so proud of what came out of the whole process, but oh my gosh, this was the you know, they tell you book two is the hardest book when you're published that there's something about the second book, and I was like, I'll be fine. This is my seventh book written. And I they're not lying. <laughs> the second book is always really yeah. I don't know if it's because it's the first time you are writing something and people are out there having opinions about something else you've written and so you're always thinking about like oh I want to make sure that the writers that liked my first book still like this book but how can I make people who might not have liked my first book like this one and give me another chance and so there's more voices in your head than before you're published and it's just sort of you and your story so I I think that's part of why it's so hard
0: and I I understand to an extent the pain of switching point of views because I was working, I've been working on this freaking manuscript. It was my thesis for my master's program and it morphed into a manuscript that I want to publish. And it was originally in third person. And for whatever reason, for literally two years, it just, it was not hitting. I wasn't happy with it, especially the beginning. And for whatever reason, one day it clicked with me and I was like, screw it. I need to change the point of view. I need to try this in first person. And I switched it and it's, so much better than it was but it's a lot
1: of freaking work to go back through and it's not something you can do like you can just have Microsoft Office do because in change from you know she to I you're sometimes changing verbs too so it's not you know something you can have a computer do for you without reading it over to make sure you don't have a million mistakes but it's amazing how much The point of view changes a relationship to a story right like that is not an arbitrary decision that readers make or writers make i sometimes write the first few chapters in both as i I like like that like which one seems to be hitting and you really have to think about how much distance you want from the character like i saw i just saw this threads post where someone pointed out why the hunger games original series needed to be in first person versus the third of uh, the the prequel being in third person because we don't want to be that close to president snow We want to be able Ooh. to make all of his decisions in a way that's harder when you're talking about first person point of view. So it like really there's a lot of thought put into that. And it's it amazing- does and
0: like you said it's amazing how it can affect a story. Absolutely. And- not only a writer's relationship with it, but a reader's relationship with it. Because sometimes, like, while it is the same story, it can be so different from one point of view to the other. So I feel your pain. And I am fantastically happy, though, that you ended up switching it. Because On the Plus Side is fantastic. Oh, and you. I love it. Um, so you have... This will be your second book released. The first one was The Makeup Test. And then this one is on the plus side. And you actually, you said you started writing your third one. Is that How to Get a Life in 10 Dates? It is. And it's it's written. It needs
1: revision. I'm in revision. Why can't I speak to it? I'm in revisions now. So it's it's a <laughs> full actual book. Not a how good that said, It's a full actual book. And How's I, that whole process been? So the third book has been interesting because I have, I think, finally sort of embraced Um, like I have to love my story first and foremost, and I can't worry about everybody who's going to read it until I love it. So I've learned to just sort of push those voices out in a way that I had a really hard time with, with the second book and just say, I have to love my art and it's my art. Right. And so I tried really hard in the first draft to fall in love with the story so then as I'm getting feedback from my editor and my beta readers and eventually copy editing and all of that I can say okay these are things that can make this story that I already love better as opposed to oh my god this terrible book right <laughs> like so I think like the many times that you have to read it before it gets into arc form and gets to readers really helps me sort of know my book enough to be able to handle that not everybody's gonna love it right but it I love it. And so that's the important bit. And it will find the people who get what I'm doing. You know, I do
0: want to ask, especially when, because like you said, you're, this third one is going through edits and whatnot. When you write a story, you know, you have this vision in your mind of what you want the story to be. And then it goes to, at least in your case, you know, you have a contract, it goes to an editor and you get all this feedback and i mean i can only imagine that some of the feedback is not necessarily what you want to hear or not something that you totally agree with sometimes how do you how do you merge the feedback that you get with your own version of the story that you want to put out there you know and how do you work through that kind of that editorial process
1: so i will say first of all that my editor is very much like she sees my vision good and so gives me feedback that helps me better reach my vision. I don't think I've ever had feedback from Sarah that I was like, oh, no, no, no. Good. It just like, and I think, so my editor, and I think a lot of editors are like this, don't come, she doesn't come to me with prescriptive changes. Like she doesn't come and say, I think you need to change. I think you need to do this instead of this. She will say, I feel like the romance is not central enough, or I feel like the pacing's off, or I feel like this scene didn't land, can we do something else here? So it's open-ended in the sense of I am the one who figures out what to do with that, and she's always happy to let me bounce ideas off of her to get to the place that makes sense for the story I'm writing. But and I don't, this has been my experience with the editors I've worked with so far. I'm sure that there were some editors that work differently, but there has never been something where Sarah has said, like, you have to do this here. And I'm like, whoa, because she doesn't <laughs> she just doesn't frame it like that, right? She frames it in terms of like, okay, the motivation for this isn't landing with me. So how do we like, how can we rethink that? And I do think you have to be able to go into feedback owning your own story, but also be willing to make changes and accept that everything's not always gonna work, right? That my books are better when I get feedback than if I wrote them in a void. And so that's how I try to go into things, is like, I know that after hearing Sarah's feedback, and I always give myself a week to go through the like, oh, I really wanted to keep this, but it has to go oh, I don't want it to go. I have to cut puppies out of this book and I'm sad about that. Not puppies. I have to cut puppies and she's right. But I had a moment of like, no, not the puppies. They're not dead. They're just going to be, maybe they'll come out as like a bonus story at some point, but she's feeling like the current love interest reads too much like Logan. which, because um the guy who well this is a little bit spoilery but let's just say that like people from on the plus side show up in this in 10 dates because it's uh they're all in the same universe so like people from the makeup test also show up in 10 dates since it's my last book in that universe so we have a little like gathering of the crew and she I just happen to love Logan so much that I just want all of my love interests to be Logan and so she was like we got to We're going to separate him a little bit from Logan. So the puppies have to go. But So I need a week or two to like marinate on that and let that sit in. And then my brain goes, she's right. And then I get to work. But I, (laughs) I, I think you have to be open to feedback, but also on like own your story enough to know when some feedback isn't working. And you can say, okay, I see what they're saying here, but their solution doesn't sit with me. So how could I address this pacing issue in a different way? Does that make sense? I like that. It does. I like that. With uh, the makeup test being your first one that was published. Mm
0: -hmm. um, And you said you wrote, you've written like seven manuscripts before. So um, on
1: the plus side was number seven.
0: On the plus side was number seven. Okay. So the first five, did you ever actually query those or were they just ones that you yeah? (laughs) So what was the difference? What was the difference then between those five and and, uh, the makeup test to where that was the one that got you know, was it your writing that had evolved? Was it just the revision process that you did before you
1: submitted? So I think it was a lot of things. First of all, one of those um, five books is going to be my YA debut in 2025. So yay! (laughs) sometimes they're not all dead the first one I queried will never leave its drawer because I was still learning a lot and um but no I queried for three years before I signed I would then I got into Pitch Wars which I'm not sure if you're familiar with Pitch Wars but it's like I am yeah entering contest and (laughs) I signed with an agent and we went out on sub with that book and it didn't sell and then we ended up parting ways and I signed with my current agent in 2020. So I queried two books in between leaving my agent and signing with my new agent that didn't go anywhere. One of them being the one that is now love at full tilt and is going to be my 2025 YA review or uh, debut. And the other being a fantasy, I hope to um come back to at some point and bring new life into. But the makeup test was my first adult book. I was writing YA because I love YA. I teach children's media so I spend a lot of time in YA <laughs> and I had really wanted to be a YA writer but I was it was breaking my heart. I you know four books YA books or five YA books and nothing. And so I said I had this idea. I spent 10 years in grad school. Grad school seems like a fun place to set <laughs> a romance. And I'd never written adult romance, but I love romance in books. It is often relationships are often the thing that pull me into books. And I said, screw it. I want to write this book. And that is the book that got me my agent in three months later, got me a book deal. And here we are now. Here you are now publishing these awesome kick-ass books. So
0: because I know a little bit about your history, I know that you do have a PhD in literature, correct? And
1: exactly what Allison has her PhD in in the makeup test, because that all exactly straight from my dissertation. <laughs> exactly. And so I gotta ask,
0: how did you make that transition from professor go- being in grad school
1: to author? You know, and what made you want to be a writer? Well, I've wanted to be a writer since I was like ten. So, and I lost. So when I was so, when I was in junior high or middle school, from sixth grade to eighth grade. I wrote nine books a year, books, right? (laughs) Like if you typed them up, they probably would have been 20,000 words. But I was obsessed with Christopher Pike and Errol Stein's Fear Street books. And I wanted to be a horror writer. And I wrote so many of my own versions of those books. But when I got to high school, I I mean, this was the, I'm gonna age myself, but this was like the mid nineties. And to be, I didn't even know what it meant. To, like, how do you become a writer? I didn't know anybody who'd ever done that. I had no idea how you do that process. And so when I got to high school, I started, you know, doing the things you do in high school. You have a social life. You have all these extracurriculars you're doing. And I kind of put writing aside until I was actually in grad school trying to write my dissertation like, God. 12 years later and like i need something that i can do that is writing but that is not academic writing to sort of keep the muscles stretched but give me a break from the like mental work of like working through literary theory and things like that and so i started i had just read twilight and while i have i have opinions about twilight's politics i was like really interested in this idea of paranormal romance right and like all the ways in which that adds extra tension to a romance, right? When you have this, like, we are different things, right? (laughs) I am a vampire. You are a human. Technically, you're lunch, right? (laughs) So, like, how do you work through those things? And so I started trying to write a paranormal, a YA paranormal romance. And that got me, that's the book that we'll never see (laughs) The outside of my drawer, but it taught me how to write a narrative. It taught me, uh, this is when I learned how to query how to, you know, what publishing looked like. And that's when I really said, oh, I'm going to try this. And it would take me another 10 years to get to a book in my hands.
0: Why did you keep going? Because there's I- a lot of people I know that they start and it doesn't happen and they give up and they stop, which is fine. That's you know Absolutely. that's their decision. I that's their I life path.
1: In my head. <laughs> <laughs> like once a month in my head. So I think exactly it's a, a mixture of I was I can't not tell stories, like and also just when I want something, I won't stop until I get it. Like that is just who I am as a person. And I think that just in me, I knew that. Because what happened, the thing the makeup test gave me is it's where I found my voice. And I realized how badly the world needs narratives about fat people that break fat phobia. And so that is also a huge driving force for me. But I think I think that also, like, I wouldn't have stopped anyways, but um, hearing from readers after the makeup test came out and the ways in which the people who understood what I was doing, that book, really understood what I was doing with fat rep in that book made it so important to me. And then the way that people are responding to on the plus side, which comes at fat rep from a different place Mm -hmm. has been even more motivation for me that like, I refuse to write a straight size character till there's so many books with fat characters in them that are healthy that I don't need to write fat characters anymore, which means I will always write fat characters because That phobia is alive and well, even in 2023.
0: Yes, it is. And as someone who loves school, been to school, got, I have two master's degrees. I love school. I am like, I'm plus size reading a character, especially in the makeup test, who had the brains and she was loved as she was like, she was loved for who she was and all of who she was. And like for... It it was such a wonderful book to read and to see that representation and that diversity in there and have her, like I said, be accepted for exactly who she was. Um. So you are very vocal on social media about body <laughs> diversity and lack of fat representation in books. You know, like, why is it specifically such an important subject for you? And, you know, the publishing industry is... St- we'll just say slowly getting better. That's just how I'm going to word it. Uh, <laughs> how are they? that we're taking a left turn away
1: though, but yes,
0: yes. <laughs> um, how is, you know, what is something that they've been doing to try and be better and to get better in regards to body diversity and fat characters? And what is something that really truly needs work?
1: Okay. Um. So first of all, if I can go back to the makeup test for a second. So one of the things about the makeup Absolutely. test that's important to me about Allison is that Allison accepts herself to write. She knows she's smart. I think some readers get really annoyed with her because she is so confident, but she knows she's smart. She knows she has value and she knows that her body as it is does not in any way undercut her value. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important perspective to have for readers who need to see that as much as I do think we need stories <clears throat> where readers are or where the main character is st- still building their way towards confidence right because we all have different relationships to our bodies and I think all of that variety needs to be out there in the same way it does you know no identity is a monolith and so my experience as a fat woman is going to be different than your experience as a fat woman or my best friend's experience as a fat woman right and so um I think as many of those perspectives as we can get out into the world, the better it is. But the fatness is still one of the most maligned um, sort of communities, <laughs> right? And it's not just, I mean, the media is bad. And I feel like media in general is not getting better, except in cases where people who are plus size have control over stories about being plus size. Like I'm trying to, I can't remember the name of, there was a show that came out over the summer that had a um, fat black woman as the lead. And it was it was on Netflix and it was all about fashion and it was amazing, right? But like nobody was talking about it. <laughs> um. And so I'm worried it won't get another season. But um, I do think that publishing, we are at least in the last like, four or five years, have seen more stories with authentic fat representation that moves away from the stereotypes of all we think about is what we're putting in our mouths or what the size of our bodies is to give us stories that look like everybody else's stories, right? Because no matter the size of my body, I want to, I have dreams, I have goals, I have struggles the same way as everybody else. And I think we're starting to see more stories out there that show how being in a fat body intersects with achieving those dreams and, you know, going through those hardships or finding love in much more authentic ways than we've seen in the past, like Olivia Dade's books, and I love her, right, Helena Greer's books, which also give us queer fat representation which we do not have enough of talia hibbert's books are so great julie murphy's been doing this work for so long now seriana glass has great you know like i can list on more than one hand now the amount of fat rep out in the world and we've got fat rep that has other intersections to it which i think is really important so that's what i think publishing is doing well the thing that it needs to get better as it doesn't push them.
0: Yeah. You know, like
1: this is the thing I've been yelling a lot about lately. When's the last time you've seen a fat book or a book with a fat character in a book box? You know, even in book of the month, not since he, um, one to watch, which was like three years ago. I don't think they've had a book with a fat character. Um, they don't get awards. They don't get put on tables as often. They don't get chosen as book club books for things like Barnes and Noble and Reese and the Today Show and Oprah and all of these things, right? So they don't get lists. They don't hit lists. They don't get adaptations, right? So they lose all of this important visibility because either they're not being pushed by their publishers the way that they need to be, or they're not visible enough for readers to get behind them enough that publishing has to respond if that makes sense it does you know like visibility is huge because there's whole sectors of the world who want fat people to disappear and so we have to be louder about fat representation to drown those voices out and that's something that i think publishing is still stumbling over also i still see so many books that have like (laughs) <laughs> micro like fat macro aggressions in that where like and I see a lot in children's lit and it drives me crazy because you will have characters whose fat bodies become stand-ins for them being greedy or them being stupid or them being um, corrupt if you only have one fat character in your book and they're bad that's something you need to think about and you would think that that's common somehow- sense That's still getting, I mean, I have read multiple YA books that have come out between 2022 and 2016 that still do this stuff. And it drives me nuts because how is, there's so many people who go into a book, a traditional book coming out. So if the author's not seeing it, why isn't the editor? Why isn't the agent? Why isn't the copy editor? Why isn't the proofreader? How is no one saying, well, does this character have to be fat? You know? (laughs) And so that bugs me a lot. <laughs> One thing with being fat and
0: being plus size, you know, my family is very loving, very mm-hmm. supportive. They don't, you know, they don't comment about my weight, not like right out, you mm-hmm. know, not, not on purpose. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, there's always some things that are said that I know I pick up on because I'm more aware of the stigma a- around weight and around the word fat you know, for example, when I tell someone I've started running again, it's always, "Well, are you trying to lose weight? Is that why you're running again?" And it's never, "Why are you running again?" You know what yeah. I mean? And it's always like how the questions and stuff are mm-hmm. phrased. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know they don't mean it in a hurtful or spiteful oh. way, but you know, it still hurts because I'm aware of it. Oh, absolutely! And it makes it seem like what I do and everything I need to do needs to be tied to my weight somehow. Uh-huh. You I know, and too. and if you had to give people advice or you know wisdom on how to change that perspective and not approach a situation or a relationship like that what's you know what's some kind of advice you could give because you are so big on this not movement I don't want to say movement um you know you know what I'm saying you know what I'm talking about
1: yeah we can call it an issue um issue I just pres- I just subscribe to don't comment on people's bodies period Right. I have a friend in, I had a friend in grad school who lost a ton of weight because she had to have like major surgery on her colon. And so she came back after her surgery and everybody was going, Oh my God, you look amazing. And she would look at them and go, Hey, thanks. I almost died. I'd rather be fat. Right. It's like, you don't know why someone has lost weight or gained weight. You know, like if I want to tell somebody they look nice, I don't tell them they look thin. I'll just say, I really like your dress, right? You know, your hair looks great today, right? Like there are ways to give people compliments or to talk to people that don't engage with their body, right? And I mean, and I think just not bringing weight loss in at all, right? Oh, great. You're running. That's awesome. You know, how's it going? Are you enjoying it? Right? Like, there are plenty of ways to have conversations about exercise that aren't about weight loss. And it's, like, you can... People need to actively be thinking about what they're saying. And I don't think most people are there yet. Right? Because this has been ingrained. A long (laughs) time. Forever. Like, I grew up in the... Like, I was born in 80s. So, like, I grew up in... I was a tween in the late 80s, early 90s. And... Um weight loss. I mean this is the age of weight watchers and all those like fat free cookie you know like the smart wells and the all of that stuff and so like it it is beat into like my mother's generation the generations between me and my mother my generation to some extent right that like fat is so bad that it should be the only thing you're focused on until you're not no matter, and it it's okay to be unhealthy if being unhealthy means you're losing weight, right? Like so many diets are just disordered eating, right, when you get right down to it. So I'm just gonna say, if people who are listening to this have never listened to Maintenance Phase, the podcast, it is such a good podcast. If you want a way to start this sort of um, disconnecting yourself from like how fatness has been um sort of ingrained like the attitudes about fatness that have been ingrained into us Uh, maintenance phase is a great place to start because the two podcast hosts um deconstruct wellness myths and so a lot of them end up coming back to myths around food and fatness and things like that so it's a really great podcast i'm gonna have to listen to that my god so and they're great and so and Aubrey Gordon is a um fat woman who writes about fatness and helps to debunk these kinds of myths and Michael Hobbs who is our co-host is a really great journalist um and really good at like deconstructing how facts are not used in the way that they're (laughs) like are interpreted wrong to support a lot of these things and so it's a great podcast so when you
0: sat down to write, we're just going to start with the makeup test because that was your first published book. Um, when you sat down to write that character, I mean, like you said, she basically has, she's going through the same kind of PhD program that you went through, you know, that this whole kind of thing, like you, obviously you drew a lot from your schooling and your own personal life. When you went in, did you know right away, was she always fat? Did you know that she was going to be that kind of character?
1: So the first time I ever wrote a fat character is the YA that's going to be my debut. And it was like, oh, okay, wait, like, <laughs> the, and so I went into this going, because I was fat in grad school, right? Like, this has been my body for a very long time. And I have only in the past five to eight years, really finally just said, this is what I look like. You know, I stopped doing the thing where I keep the clothes that don't fit just in case I might fit into them again. I get rid of them and I buy new clothes. And I was like, this is who I am. And this is my body. I am medically healthy. I go to the doctor, right? Like I am, this is my body, right? And so I'm gonna stop looking at my body the way the world tells me I have to look at my body. And I'm going to just look at me and say, this is who I am and that's okay. And I wanted to give that to Allison because it was so freeing for me. And so I did not have like this big love. I was already married. <laughs> so, but, so the love, the thing with Carlin is very much um not from my background. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I was already married. But um the the stuff her relationship with her body, her relationship with her father is very much not. It, like an autobiographical representation of my own relationship with father figures in my life but is definitely inspired by things I've dealt with with family members her relationship with her mom is a lot like my relationship with my mother so there was a lot of autobiography put into that but every character I have envisioned since I wrote that YA book are always fat because they so need I, stories told
0: they do and I want to quick cut to your husband because mm-hmm. he came with you two, happy to Happy to meet you. And I got to meet him and. <laughs> okay. So when I met him, so you guys were sitting in the row in front of me and he was wearing this shirt and that's how I realized it was you. Uh, it was you two sitting there because he was wearing a shirt and on the back, it had a cover of the makeup test and on the plus side. And then I think the shirt said, like, my husband or my husband, my wife
1: wrote these books, ask me about them or something to that extent. Front said, ask me about my wife's books. And when he turned around it said, my my wife wrote these. And then there's the two covers and a QR code, which (laughs) I love. Very ingenious. So
0: (laughs) and it just it made me so happy because I'm like, oh, my goodness, I love how much he is supporting you. Like he was there with you. He flew out with you. You know, he wore the shirt. And I know you guys, you told me you guys went to Disneyland and you guys wore the shirts. Like, and how does it feel to have a partner who is so supportive of you and who's just like, you know what? Screw it. Yeah, I'll wear the shirt. I will 100% wear the shirt to try and promote your books.
1: He just goes out with it. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me so so happy. (laughs) I mean, he is. So he has, we've been together 20 years and married 17. So he has been, he has seen the work that I, and the the heartbreak I've gone through, the struggles I've gone through, how many books I've written, how much I sacrificed to write because I work full time. And so I have to fit writing into that. He does, he makes dinner and does the dishes when I'm on deadline, you know, he helps keep the house so it's not falling apart. He He is incredibly supportive of me. Um, which makes it easier for me to be able to write love stories because I feel like I have a pretty good one right and also to just um, to know that it's okay for me to focus on this even when i'm not you know even before I was making money from it he validated it for me which I think unfortunately doesn't always happen for people it took me a long time to admit that I wrote to people outside of my marriage because I didn't have quote anything to show from it except books that hadn't been sold and I think that's the wrong attitude to have about writing I think if you write you're a writer and that's the end of it and we should start to have that attitude Um, but he helped validate that what I was doing had value no matter what happened with the books that i was doing something i loved that i was producing things that felt important to me and that that was enough to support and that helps me keep going on the days where i'm like i could just have one job (laughs) (laughs) and so he's a good egg i appreciate he he is a good
0: egg and he was very sweet and he was very kind when i met you guys and like i said for whatever reason just the fact that he was wearing that shirt and was like, yeah, ask me about my wife's books. That has stuck with me since I met you too. <laughs> oh, and it just, and it, it just, it made me so freaking happy. Yeah. Um, I do want to cut to uh, you being, you working full time in addition to your writing, because you are a professor I am. In, of literature. And so, and like I said, you have your PhD in literature. What made you want to go to grad school? What yeah. made you want to do it in literature? What made you want to be a professor you know I just I'm my mom's a professor she's a math professor so I love (laughs) she would probably say the same thing about you like oh my goodness that's amazing like what made you want to choose literature as your career path whether you were a writer or not
1: so I've always been a reader um and I started college thinking I watched too much law and order and thought I wanted to be a lawyer (laughs) Right. I think as as we do as kids, right? I was like, this looks cool and I like to talk. I'm gonna be a lawyer. And I took one criminology class and said, I wanna die. This is boring. I don't think I want to be a lawyer. And so I had at that time an incredible English professor for my like first year English class. Like at the school I went to, there was college writing and then there was first, there was like first year literary studies or something and everybody had to take it and she was she's actually one of the professors inspired by Wendy Francis her name is Wendy nice and nice he was a medievalist and I was like this is awesome like I have always loved like I always did well in my English class I always loved talking about books and like analyzing books and thinking about the ways in which books make us look at the world differently and then I was like here is somebody who gets to do this for a living and gets control over what she's teaching, right? Like in high school, you there's curriculums you have to stick to and it doesn't matter what your specialties in, you're still teaching whatever's on the curriculum. Where in college, you can, you're specialized, right? And so you get to teach the things you are known to be an expert in. And I was like, this is awesome. And so I took every medieval lit class i i could with her and i've always really loved like the sword and sorcery fantasy right and like the things with knights and historical movies and things like that and the i've got particularly drawn to medieval romance right so chivalric like all the knights and, uh, and all the king arthur stuff and um she was my inspiration and she actually told me like, you might consider changing where you get your undergrad degree to have a better chance to get a PhD at a school that will get you a better job. And so she really helped me um, sort of get on this career path. And I ended up deciding, like, I love medieval literature, but I was about halfway through my PhD when I realized I am more invested in children's literature, which intersects, right? Because you wouldn't have a lot of what we consider children's literature without a lot of stuff coming from the middle ages and so there's definitely intersection there but I just realized how important children's literature is to how people grow up and see the world and so I got really invested in that but my degree didn't have anybody doing children's lit so I finished it in medieval romance but when I started at my current university I kind of shifted my focus a little bit so now I teach classes in children's media and I teach college writing and so
0: has your time as a professor and I mean, your time going through the PhD program in literature, apart from, you know, your characters in the makeup test mirroring that, you know, how has that, that whole kind of career and that whole process influenced your writing?
1: Well, I think it studying literature teaches you narrative, right? It, it may teach it to you in a different way than if you are taking creative writing courses Um, and getting an MFA where it's like, this is what pacing is, and right? But when you study, I mean, I've spent, I was an English major in undergrad. I got my MA in English literature and I have a PhD. And then I'm teaching literature. And so you're really thinking about how stories are produced, how they are paced, how they get across the messages that you end up taking from them. And all of that teaches you about writing just the other way, right? And that is how I study craft too, is like I'll read craft books, but I get more from like taking one fantasy book and putting it next to the other and saying, how do they approach this issue of like power or um, sort of a moral gray character in a completely different way. And that's how I learn craft is from looking at models. And so it has has definitely influenced my writing. You can see it from the book I was writing as I started my dissertation that did not understand pacing to save its life. And I think I've come a long way. Character development has always been what I think is a strength for me. And I always have a hard time with like pacing and plot, but I feel like I've grown a lot in that. And a lot of it is from just continuing to teach and study these things on a daily basis.
0: That was going to be my next question how kind of how has your writing and your storytelling kind of changed over the years um and it, it makes sense it would make sense that you teaching this stuff mm-hmm. would influence and you know you would learn how to do different things i, I like that though that you just flat out admit you're like my pacing was terrible
1: it, it is bad <laughs> i still struggle with it that's the thing like there are always going to be things that writers are good at and things that they are that are work for them and um i my editor has helped me learn more about pacing and so i feel like my third book has a little bit less of an issue with pacing than some of the others did but it still needs work right it's just some people are great at plot i feel like by the time i produce a draft my main character is pretty clear and like who they are what their motivations are how the story is driven by those motivations is all there but like ooh the midpoints at 75% and like i always when i'm drafting give up <laughs> like 75% i'm like and everything goes gets better and the end <laughs> and then i'm like I'm- i
0: understand that i understand that wholeheartedly <laughs> because the manuscript that i i just finished recently i think it was last week It was the same one that I had freaking been working on for two and a half years. And because I wrote what I thought was up to the midpoint, you know, and that's what I worked on for literally two years, because like I said, I was never happy with it, kept going through changes, blah, blah, blah. When I started writing again, like I finally redid that first section, changed the point of view, was happy with it. And I started writing. I was like, okay, this is halfway through the book. And as I was going, I was like, oh, shit, my book's almost done. This isn't this isn't halfway. This is a little over two thirds of the way like the ending is has to come quick. So I, I understand. I appreciate that you're just like, no pacing is hard and pacing sucks. Sometimes,
1: if it helps. The first book I wrote, it took me five years to get something that I would show somebody because I also rewrote the first hundred pages like seven times. And then I was really yep, yep. excited to write the end. So I wrote the second half of the book and I really loved the second half and could never make the first half match up with it. Right. And it really was two books smushed into one. Cause it was like 180,000 words. <laughs> and so like that poor book went through so many revisions. Um, but I think that's how you learn, right? Like, You have to be willing to take stuff apart and to say, oh crap, (laughs) like my midpoint. This is not working. That's a two-thirds point. Does that mean it's not actually my midpoint, or do I have some cutting to do? Right. Exactly. And like mine
0: takes place in the span of a month because it's a it's a gothic fantasy and it's a whole curse thing. It's it's a whole thing, but it takes place in a month. So I'm like, well, shit, like I have a very like distinct timeline that this book has to take place. So I need to go back through and I need to make sure all of my freaking dates line up, you know, <laughs> that it actually does take place in a month. It's been a whole thing. But I do want to say though, that I appreciate you saying that that one manuscript took you like five years to write because I love my parents. I love my parents to death, but they're always like, when are you going to finish this book? When are you going to finish this book? And I'm like, guys, you don't understand how much time it takes to put this stuff on the page and to get it to a place where you're happy to share it with someone, like where you're confident in it. So I also like
1: that. The first book is where you start to develop a process. And to me, the the best thing a writer can do is develop a drafting and revision process. And to know what that is, because if you end up deciding to go into traditional publishing, suddenly you're looking at, Having to produce a book in a year, right? And that can be really hard to do if you have been on a different kind of schedule. And so I feel like um, knowing, okay, uh, this is how I draft. And it is what it is. And it's never, my drafting process is a disaster because it's the hardest part for me. I love revision. Revision is where the book comes to life for me and my brain starts being like, that meme that's like the lady looking at all the math problems and everything. All the things. Yeah. And she's yeah, like, that's, that's revisions for me is like, I can see all that stuff and how it fits and I can revise, you know, 50 pages in two days, but it may take me two weeks to write 50 pages. Right. And really? so, um, I know I have to leave myself more time to draft and that I have to fight with my brain and say, it's okay that it's not perfect. And sometimes I have to give in to that and go back and edit stuff because it will make me feel better. So I have to give myself like six months to draft something knowing that I can revise it in a month or two. And so I think knowing like, and I've learned that writing a full synopsis first, as much as the pantser in me gets really upset that it's helpful to have, Full synopsis. Um, I've learned that that helps me draft faster, and so even though it's a it's painful for me to write a synopsis, I've started doing that. Right, like learning the things that give you a process that you can lean on when you don't have as much time as you're used to producing a book is hugely helpful. And I think that the first book you write teaches you a lot of that. So like sitting down when it's done and going, what worked for me and what didn't, and how can I like use that in the future to write faster is a good sort of thing to do because even in indie publishing where you technically can take as long as you want there's an expectation from readers that stuff's gonna come out pretty quickly right and so you can't take five years between books or you get forgotten unless you're J.R.R. Martin right I
0: feel like yes then you can take as long as you freaking want and still piss your people off but right? They're still going to read it, you know, like yeah. Suzanne
1: Collins said, How long between the Hunger Games and the prequel that she put out? And that's okay because she's Suzanne Collins. But for those but of us down. who are not those people, I think there's an expectation from readers that um, they're going to be able to get content from us in a pretty steady period. So finding those things that help you write. And the things that you knew, you know don't help you write are good to just kind of learn while you're writing that first book. And so it takes longer.
0: It does. And I do want to ask because I'm the opposite. I enjoy drafting because I like when I sit down and certain things just kind of come to me sure. and it takes me a while because I feel like it needs to be a certain caliber, which I feel That's like fun. is going to bite me in the ass at some point, but I am going through the revision process. And I realized I don't like the revision <laughs> process. We're so, on one way or the other, <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't like the revision process I have learned. So what is some advice you could give just a random person walking down the street who's trying to write a book? What is some revision process advice that you could give
1: them? Well, I think figure out like, what don't you like about it is a good place to start, right? Is it that um, you have to take apart the things that you really liked? And that's because I think there's some sometimes with revision, there's this sense of I worked so hard to get this here and now I have to get rid of this part or I have to dismantle it that can have like internal resistance, which is why I try very hard to not let myself perfect things while I'm drafting because I know I'm not going to want to get rid of that beautiful sentence. I'm going to really struggle to get to cut the puppies if I spend too much time perfecting the puppies. And so I know to be wary of that, but I think it's also like figuring out what's the roadblock for revision. Like, what is it that makes it hard for you? And so what can you do to either work with that or to try and combat that, right? Like, if you know revision is hard for you, then you spend, you give yourself more time to revise than you would to draft right and you say okay I'm only going to be able to revise five pages a day because it takes me a long time or my brain just really hates this part of the process and so you know figuring out how to work with that is I think because there's always parts of the process we don't like yeah and like
0: I've realized that my thing is because when I sit down and write like in college this was a terrible thing for me to do. But when I was in college and I had to write a paper, I had to do a presentation. If I gave myself three weeks to do it and I did a little bit at a time, the end product was not as good if I just sat down like the night before or two days before and did it because the flow and the process, I think, like the flow was better if that makes sense for me. And so I struggled going back in and adding things and going into deeper detail with this and making sure that the flow is, you know, it it equals kind of what I already
1: wrote. And so that's, I struggle with that. <laughs> I also think too, because in college, like how often did we ever revise anything? That's true. You know, like I, I think every college student, there are very few, even I was like, oh, I have an English paper due tomorrow. I should sit down and write this at 10 p.m. at night. Right, and so mm-hmm. then busting through it, And you don't have time to read it over, right? And so we don't learn revision skills. Like In my writing classes, I force them to have drafts do five days before the papers do because we do class workshops. And I'm like, ta-da, now you have four whole days that you can go back to this and look at it and think about how you make it stronger, right? (laughs) And in the one I teach in the spring, I actually make them in class, rewrite paragraphs from scratch, like you're not allowed to use any of the same words and you're not allowed to use any of the same quotes and then build a final paragraph out of the two versions you have. And almost always they blend the two together. I like that. Right? And But I think we're not taught revision or we don't allow ourselves space to revise in college because we're all like, oh, I'm better under stress. And it's like, no, you just, no, you're not. <laughs> you're just killing your mental health and your sleep pattern. Not- yeah,
0: no, 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 you're not. You're not better. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I get, like, I think revision, like everything else, is a craft that's learned. And, and I never, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. That's, it's- I like that. And so that you may find four books from now that you actually like revision as you learn the way it works best for you because I used to be someone who loved drafting and then I got to see what the book looked like after I revised it and the perfectionist in me was like that I want that (laughs) that's that I like I really like that yeah and so my brain now knows that in revisions I'm getting it there and so I think it feels more joy and like works better than when I'm like, oh God, I know this is not gonna be perfect, but I have to type it out anyway. I like that. That's totally
0: changed my view on revision. Cause you're right. In college it's
1: yeah, we're not necessarily taught the revising process. I like that. Nor do we give ourselves the time to do it even if we're taught it.
0: Right. Yeah, like like me who did it right, you know, the night before. Yeah. Right. Oh, now I'm kind of excited to see how
1: the whole revision thing goes. Like to, I mean, I think there's tons of like blogs and podcasts out there where people talk about how they revise and like listening to how other people revise can sometimes make you go, oh, that might work for me. Right. Like I sit down and read through the whole manuscript and take notes of what are the things I know that I need to address. Like I'll have a, here's the big stuff in the whole book I know I have to do. And then I go chapter by chapter and I'm like, oh, you've got to address this big thing here. You've got, this small thing needs to be changed. And then when I sit down to revise, I'm just doing the things I've already made out on my list. I like that. I'm uh, I'm gonna have to spend some
0: time today revising because I was gonna take, I took yesterday off and all I did was read because it's been- Oh, you need a break. I've had, yeah, I've had some- i've had some personal things going on and i was like you know what i'm gonna read today i'm not gonna stress out about the book i'm not gonna do that but today i'm actually uh kind of excited which is something i never
1: thought i'd say i was excited to revise so thank you i appreciate it to it it. if you can get past the oh god i have to take apart all this work i've done i like that
0: thank you you totally kind of changed my view i'm i'm actually excited for that
1: yay i want to hear how that goes
0: oh god I'm 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 excited. This is so weird for me. This is a completely <laughs> new feeling for me. I'm excited. Okay. Sorry. I got distracted. Okay. So let's switch to our end of interview questions. Okay. okay. So I they don't have to be the answers can be as short or as long as you would like. Okay? So the first one is what is your favorite genre to read? Fantasy. Fantasy. Okay. What is your favorite fantasy book? Like, if you could only read one for the rest of your life, what
1: would it be? Whenever people ask me these questions, and I'm like, I've never read a book, <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I'm the reading, same way. I am reading so I loved the um Merciful Crow series by Margaret Owen, which is a YA series that I thought was really great. Um, I'm currently reading The River Enchanted by Rebecca Ross, which. Um, Rebecca Ross like is one of those authors where I'm like, well, I'm never gonna bother trying to write fantasy because I can't do this. <laughs> and I'm really enjoying that. And I'm almost done with Vampires of El Norte by um Isabella Canas. And, oh, how is that one? Oh I am letting I'm only letting myself read two chapters a night because I don't want it to end. It's beautiful really? and creepy and does some, not even like a big historical reader, but the way she comes at like Mexican history and weaves it into romance and horror is just so well done. Again, I'm like, this is why I'm never gonna try this because I can't do this, right? (laughs) So, but I love, I love fantasy because it just takes me out of where I am, right? It's a totally new place i do
0: want to ask because you you do write romance okay if you could only read one romance book for the rest of your life what would it be the charm offensive movie. i've never actually read that one
1: it is so it, i love romance is set in reality tv which may be clear from you know my book that's coming out at the end of next month <laughs> and so it's like set on a bachelor-esque show where um the and it's like it follows the um handler of the bachelor and then the bachelor character and as they fall for each other (laughs) oh And, and so it's a queer romance and um it's got some of the best mental health rep i have ever seen in romance it is just done so carefully and so thoughtfully um That I just love that book so much.
0: I need to read that one because I love Alison Cochran. I love her to death. So I need to, that's the one of hers I haven't read. So I need to read that one.
1: It It is so
0: good. Okay. So if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? Rockstar and Norm. Normie. Nice. That's a good one. you can't go wrong with normie you know normie and whatever it is right i just
1: i was like one of those girls in my teens who was like if i need a man who plays a guitar and i didn't end up that way and that's fine because i like the man i got but um i'd love to do like a rock star um normie Right. (laughs) Really
0: quick, we're going to go back to a question I originally wanted to ask you because I just realized I forgot about it. And I don't know what about that question just triggered this Mm -hmm. for me. Um, But really quick, you, for how to get a life in 10 dates, you just shared a dedication for it. yes. And I'm going to read it really quickly. Uh, For anyone who has ever thought they'd never get it right, remember, right and wrong are subjective words and messes can be beautiful. Why that dedication?
1: Because I always think I'm a mess. (laughs) <laughs> like people look at me, and they think I have everything together. Like somehow I have this. I teach full time. I'm popping out books left and right. I have multiple book deals, and they think that I've just got all of my sh- excuse my French, but my shit together. And I do not. <laughs> and like I feel like what we do, like the, we spend too much time looking at everybody else and comparing ourselves to them and seeing ourselves as wrong. We made the wrong choices. We're not perfect, we're messy. And that's really what that book is about is like the main character is trying to forge her own way in the world that doesn't look like what everybody tells her she should be doing as an adult. And so she is very afraid of the word mess and has to come and by the end of the book, starts to learn that like messes don't have to be negative things, right? That you can have your own way of doing things. And so I just, I don't know, I just feel like it's really important that we stop expecting ourselves to be what the world says a 40 year old or a 30 year old or a 35 year old looks like, right? You don't have to be married with two kids and have this job and your 401 k's full. And you know what I mean? Like you can still be successful and a good human and et cetera, et cetera. even if your life doesn't look like that and so that's really what that book is about I'm not gonna cry <laughs> <laughs> so I remember I put in the notes I was like
0: FYI I might cry when I ask you this and when you respond to this but thank you you're
1: welcome so I'm gonna say All thank right. you
0: sometime I'm, in I'm December
1: welcome. next year we'll be
0: out in the world <laughs> I'm uh I'm not going to cry. Okay. Sure. So <laughs> so what is the most valuable piece of advice you've received in
1: regards to your writing? Key, um, always be writing something else, which I know is not advice that works for everybody. But for me, that is the thing that keeps me healthy, right? So when I have, I've learned how to start working on something new when I'm on sub or like when I was querying, because for me, that means I will have something else if this doesn't go the way I want it to. And that is what's healthy for me. I think for some people, they have to take a break and that is fine for you. You know, you have to do what's best for you. But for me, in my writing, that was the best advice is just remind yourself over and over again, you're more than one story. And that even if this story that you wrote, that you love, isn't the one that gets you where you want to go right now, another one will. And I mean, the makeup test is proof of that. It was the sixth book for me, right? <laughs> and so just always keep reminding yourself you're more than one story.
0: You're killing me on this podcast. I'm telling you, oh my God. Like just so much of what you've said today is just hitting home with me.
1: Oh, yay. <laughs> also, some not- books that didn't work then come back because I wrote- Love it full tilt in 2017, and it's going to be on shelves in 2025.
0: Yeah, That, right. I get that. The first manuscript you ever wrote, it's, you know, I wrote it, and it was before I started my master's program. And I was like, okay, you know what? It went through a couple rounds of edits. I was like, okay, this is decent. I can, you know, screw it. Let's query.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh please. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good Lord. Well, query that you could possibly. My favorite being when I didn't quite understand what they meant by sample chapter. So I sent somebody my favorite chapter in the book, which was like chapter 37.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> looking uh looking back on that book now. I revisited it. Revisited it. That's that doesn't that sounds weird to me. Sorry. Um <laughs> revisited it uh I don't know, a couple months ago because it after I finished the mistress the one I'm working on now I want to go back and I I do want to rewrite that and redo that story but oh good lord looking back on it I was like holy this is
1: I think no that should be how it is right I want the makeup test to be the worst book I ever published if that makes sense it does and like I love it and it's my baby and it will always hold a special place in my heart but I strive to make it the worst book I ever published because I want to keep growing right? And like, I look back at some of the stuff I wrote 15 years ago, and I'm like, oh, sweet summer child. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, you, that's bad. You have to learn you don't need this many adjectives. Right, like Your are midpoints at the 80% mark. <laughs>
0: well, And like, at the same time, at least with me going back and rereading, you know, a chapter or two from that, and then looking at you know, the chapters I've written in this one, it's also kind of nice to go, oh, hey, I've gotten a lot better, you know? And obviously there's, I can continue to grow, but it's nice to see that growth.
1: Absolutely. And that I have evolved a little bit, you know? And you have to write that book to get where you are now. Like, I don't feel like any book is ever wasted. You learn something from each of them. And even if they never see the light of day, they taught you something.
0: They still teach you something, Yeah. Now, if you weren't an author, okay, and you can't say a professor, okay. what the heck? <laughs> you can't say a professor, because that's oh. you already are one. But okay. if you couldn't be an author, what would you want to do for work? If you could pick anything in the world?
1: If I can pick anything in the world, and mm-hmm. I will get paid enough to live, no matter what it yes. is. Yes. Yes, work at a doggy daycare.
0: <laughs> yes. I knew I liked you for a reason all around in the dirt with some dogs <laughs> i my thing is if i had same thing if it paid me well whatever i would open up a sanctuary for elderly animals because i like i'm a rescue mom i like to rescue my puppy dogs and my kitty cats and for whatever reason the ones i've rescued a lot of them have been older you know ones that have been in there for
1: years or whatever they get their yeah. harder to adopt out because they're older yeah I know that's, I liked
0: you for a reason.
1: That's Logan's whole spiel, right? <laughs> exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. Okay, now if you could invite any person over for dinner,
1: dead or alive,
0: who would you invite and why?
1: Nicole Byer, because I think we have the best time.
0: Nice. <laughs> now, if you could invite a fictional person over for dinner,
1: who would you invite? That one's tough. Um, some <laughs> can it be one of my own? Absolutely i'd really love to slap ethan one more it went back there so i would like have him personally in my room so I could slap him that would be excellent
0: you know that would be
1: fantastic right.
0: <laughs> honestly i like the reasoning that's the most honest reasoning i think i've ever heard that's fantastic now if where is a place that you haven't visited that you would like to both domestically and internationally?
1: Scotland. I want to see castles and um, I've heard it's just beautiful. Um, and then somewhere in um, domestically as well. I mm-hmm. think Chicago. I've never been to Chicago and it seems like a cool city. I think Chicago would be fun. I'm
0: afraid that if I ever go to Edinburgh that I will love it so much I will never come back right no
1: I know this is my problem <laughs> Europe
0: <laughs> yeah
1: are you in are you yeah you're in the U.S. right
0: yeah, yeah I'm in California especially yeah. like nowadays
1: right it's like if I go to Europe I don't know what they could convince I uh you. I don't know if
0: I'm coming back you may just have to ship me all of my right? stuff exactly <laughs> okay so last question what is currently bringing you joy
1: what is currently bringing me joy my dogs as always um, my husband and I just finished watching The Fall of the House of Usher, which I know we're long past like the Halloween time, but Mike Flanagan's work. Like my pipe dream right now, I realize Mike Flanagan's not doing romance, but my pipe dream is to someday write something that Mike Flanagan would adapt because I have loved every iteration of, like every show he's done for Netflix. Like every single one. I They make my mind percolate, and they're beautiful to look at. And I love how he does Easter eggs, of other things like the fall, of the House of usher has so much Poe, just like a ground Poe stuff just like weaved into it that my literature brain is like. Ah! And last I year love- he did a Christopher Pike book from my youth and then interwove a lot of his other books into the story through what they were doing and it was like the coolest i just think he's brilliant um and so i love his stuff and i watch Shit's creek just basically on a rotation like when it especially when i'm stressed out like that's the i need tv on i don't have to focus too much on so
0: i want to ask for Shit's creek okay yes. who's your favorite character
1: <sighs> probably david with alexis as a close second my dogs were almost named david and alexis or johnny and moira it was very close but we ended up with tucker and dale because we like tucker and dale we love the reference to the um horror film not everybody has seen and so we know the people who have seen this movie when they go wait tucker and dale like tucker dale versus evil and i'm like yes absolutely (laughs) a hundred percent yes
0: but yes, they were all Johnny and Moira. It was
1: so close. Johnny and Moira or ham and cheese. We also went back and forth.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> oh my god. That's amazing.
1: But I can't imagine them named anything but Tucker and Dale now.
0: Tucker and Dale. Yeah, that's their that's their name. Yeah. David is. David is my favorite. I just started re-watching it because I kept, you know, I keep seeing David things pop up on my Instagram, you know, and the video clips of oh.
1: But no, like, I know. His, and just the faces are just amazing. They
0: are, and I'm very much a gift person. To where, like, if someone sends me something, that's how I respond, is in gifts. And Absolutely. I literally had probably a 15 minute conversation with my aunt one day.
1: That was all David. Where,
0: was. yeah, it was just gifts back and forth. <laughs> and she went the Chandler being route, and then I went the David route. And it, I was like, you can't go wrong with David.
1: Like you just can't. He has he has such a wide range. We'll just go yeah, with that. He's just so great. And I like so I'm in the season now where he, he where Patrick is now here, and I think him <laughs> and Patrick have one of the best done romances on television. In one hundred percent. And so like the minute Patrick showed up, I'm just like, listen, I've seen this show forty times. I know where this is going, and I don't care. And it still makes okay. me laugh. Like Moira still makes me laugh. Uh, My favorite David moment, though, is when him and Stevie go, best wishes, warm regards. (laughs) (laughs) With just complete sarcasm. I don't know. It's just such a great show. It is just, and they ended it at a time where they, like, they let it percolate and then ended it before they ruined it.
0: Yeah. Which is, I feel like, a hard thing for a lot of people to do.
1: Most shows don't do that. Most shows go on too long. And then there's, like, seasons that are like, right but I Mm -hmm. can just watch Shit's Creek over and over and over again and it is just every minute is so good especially as you get into season two and they really like found their stride yeah can I edit today while I watch Shit's Creek
0: yes I'm gonna put that I'm gonna put that uh, to the test today to see if I can multitask into both of those because I want to silence but that's me so do do I usually which is why this is going to be a very interesting afternoon But but thank you so much, Jenny, for being here. I loved having you here. It was an honor to meet you earlier this year. And just thank you so much for being on here. I really appreciate it.
1: Hi, I love chatting with you. You're
0: great. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And before I sign off, I just wanted to say thank you so much again for taking the time out of your day to tune in. If you want to stay up to date on episodes and announcements, please subscribe or follow me at The Real Bookish Writer or at The Well Read Podcast on Instagram. Thank you again for listening and have a magical day. See you next week.